Bibles, you can go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 7. That's where we're going to briefly be visiting in a, in a moment, Acts chapter 7. Uh, we are just the three of us tonight, as Mingu is walking down, Kyle's out of town uh, this Sunday, so that makes it three, this is our third week in this series, From Darkness to Light, and third time in a row that only three of us have been here, right? Uh, I, I think Ben was out, I was out, now it's Kyle's turn, Mingu's been holding us out, holding, holding the fort down for us. Um, so if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 7 is where we're going to be tonight. So let's quickly look back to where we've been before we get into our new text for this evening. So far we've looked at two different phases of the life of Paul before we get to where we're going to tonight. The first one we looked at is his uh, time of persecution, a, a point in his life where he stood opposed to the church and he stood to, to seek... Uh, to, to endanger and uh, to harm the church, actually. The first mention you have the life of Paul is Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Now, this is at the end of um, Stephen's great testimony, great uh, sermon here, and they're about ready to kill him, and now in verse 58. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, if you jump down, we're going to read the first three verses of chapter 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. And he would put them in prison. And so a few weeks ago we discussed this idea, the very first kind of image we have of Saul here is one that he's driven, he's intelligent, but he's acting and, he, and he's vehemently going against the way, this new, um, to, in his mind, a perverted, misguided judgment of the Jewish faith. And, and a Pharisee who we find out which is what he is, is a young and upcoming, a very established name from established family, a Pharisee. The, the idea of Christianity was almost vulgar to him, something that was offensive to him, to the point where he is now dedicating his life to seeing this flame of a new faith being, being squelched out. So that's the first image we have of, of Saul here, someone who's vehemently working against the church, giving it all. He has a lot of energy, got a lot of momentum, got a lot of passion, but it's misguided. And so we kind of looked at this idea that even when we are passionate about something doesn't necessarily mean that it's okay. Being passionate and having a lot of energy and, and focus behind something doesn't necessarily mean that we're working for the truth in that. So it's always good to make sure we're aligning ourselves with the truth. And then now flipping over to chapter 9, a couple weeks ago, we, do, we kind of dug into the conversion. We left the persecution of Saul and we looked at the conversion of Saul in verses 1 all the way down to verse 19 roughly. We see as he's on the way to Damascus, he's there to ravage the church, he's there to pull people out of their homes and put them in prison, but, and as you know the story, on his way to Damascus, he's blinded by a light, he hears the voice of the Lord, he sees him, he hears him, and he responds to him in this, in this conversation with the Lord. He goes to Damascus, he runs into Ananias just as the Lord predicted he would, and Ananias helps him in his conversion with baptism. So that's where we left off with the, with the life of Saul. We started out, he's persecuting the church. Now he's converted, he's a member. And if you kept reading verses 20 through 25, you see that he's been preaching now too. He has been roughly what, what we have an idea of. He's been spending possibly two, up to three years in Damascus preaching. 
And it took two to three years of him preaching to finally to where they get in verses 20 through 25 where the the people of Damascus are ready for him to leave. They're tired of his preaching. The Jews are upset at what he's doing. He's, he, he now has his own disciples, men and women, who he has converted into the, the way, the Lord's uh, church. And the Jews, as he would go to the synagogues, are so upset at him now, they're ready to kill him. And so he has to be lowered out in a basket outside of a window. So we have this kind of you know, daring escape. And this is just within the first couple of years of his faith. And we can think about maybe the first couple of years of your faith, if something like that would have happened where you had to be led out of a city at night in the cloak of darkness so that you weren't going to be killed that evening. So some extreme things going on from, very, you know, from day one in the, in the Christianity, the life of Saul here. So we're going to be picking up in verse 26 here in a moment. We looked at the persecution a few weeks ago as we started off. We had this crucial moment of his conversion, and now verses 26 through 31, we're going to look at his reception. This new phase where he is now returning to Jerusalem. He's been gone for a couple of years. And so just to kind of set the scene, to put ourselves in the shoes of Saul here before we read, let's remember the la- what was going on the last time he was here. The last time that we have record of Saul being in the city of Jerusalem, he's holding the cloaks of Stephen. He begins this great persecution that pretty much makes all the the new Christians except the apostles flee in danger and to to be dispersed in the area. The last time Saul is walking out of the gates of Jerusalem, headed to Damascus, he's heading that way to put Christians in prison. And now roughly, maybe only a year and a half, two years later, he's possibly walking through those same gates. Same gate, same road, but completely different man, right? Imagine as he's walking in, remember he's going from, he went from Jerusalem to Damascus, now he's returning from Damascus to Jerusalem. I wonder if he walked past that, that area where he was blinded by that great light. Mile marker 37, I don't know, he's walking through, and there it was, there's that, there's the, this is where I heard the voice of the Lord. Maybe he keeps walking, maybe, and this is obviously from that point conjecture, but as he's getting close to Jerusalem, the last time he was there, he's pulling people out of homes, and now he recognizes, I'm going there to preach to these same people. Maybe he's walking by the hill of Golgotha for the first time, recognizing what that hill stands for now. And then as he enters into Jerusalem, I wonder if he ever has to walk past the pit that they threw Stephen into and stoned him. He said, yep, that's where I stood at. That's the last time I saw a group of Christians in this city. So a, a big moment for the life of Saul here, the, the man of Saul here. He's not just returning to Jerusalem. This is just not another city. This has been his home base. This is where he has grew up a, a large part of his life, not his whole life. This is where he's established himself. So let's dig into our text, and I'll open it up to our other ministers tonight. 26 through 31. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took a hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. 
But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It, the church, continued to increase. So let's look back at verse 26, this first image we have of Saul walking into Jerusalem. When he came to Jerusalem, he's trying to associate with the disciples. He is now trying to mingle with the group of men and women, possibly the apostles there as well, right? Where the last time they saw him, he was dragging people out of homes, he was dragging people through the streets, he was putting them in prison. And now he comes in roughly two or three years later saying, I'm a changed man. And the apostles, the disciples, are a little weary of this. They kind of pumped the brakes there, Saul. And Saul, maybe Saul is, the, the verbiage, which I'll, I'll get to in a second, the, the wordage here in verse 26 in the Greek is an ongoing, he, he didn't just try once, but this is a nonstop ongoing trying to join himself with the body of believers in Jerusalem, and they keep rejecting him. But then Barnabas steps up. So my first question for, the, for our, our ministers tonight is, does this scenario, do you think, does it still play out in our in, our, in, the, in the church today, not just Beaufort, but the church today, where sometimes it's hard to see a change in someone, or you, it's hard to see someone who maybe you knew used to be one way, but has come back a, a changed person, or is advocating or advertising something else. Is that a difficult thing for us as the church today? Is that something we deal with? You know, it's interesting, the title of our study is From Darkness to Light, and that's exactly what we see happen throughout the life of Saul, changing into Paul. We talked about the darkness, the deepest darkness we can read about possibly with the persecuting the church. He turns into the light he, he, in that conversion lesson we had, and he stays in that light. But it's interesting, a lot of times when you leave the darkness, other people want to keep you in the darkness. When you're in the light and you're trying to be of the light and you're trying to leave that darkness behind you, sometimes the people around you won't let you leave it. Sometimes the people around you won't want you to have been in the light. They want you to keep you in their mind in that darkness. And that's exactly what I see happening to Saul in this text. And you know, the answer to your question, I, I would like for the answer to be no. I, I would like for the answer to be that in the church, once you become a Christian, once you repent, once you do whatever the case might be, that you're automatically accepted by everyone and, and it is just... Like the songs say, you know, God's family, all the time. And a lot of times it is. But sometimes it's not. And that's what's happening to Saul here, and that's what he's running into. Sometimes when you've been hurt by someone, or you've hurt someone, or uh, you've experienced some situation that you felt wronged, and, and you feel like they've hurt you, or someone you love, or uh, uh, a member of your family and then they get their life right, it's kind of hard for you to just automatically accept it. And honestly, it's against sometimes human nature to just readily accept them back. You know, I wasn't alive during this time. Kyle's not here to make fun of me. <laughs> but Ronald Reagan, uh, I believe, was really famous for the phrase, trust but verify. Trust but verify. I believe in the Russian conflict, he really... Uh, wanted to show trust, but he's going to verify the fact that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? And my, my dad would say that a lot growing up. 
I trust you, but I'm going to verify, you know, so I don't know what that's supposed to be. I guess I wasn't trustful. But anyway, <laughs> I believe there's sometimes that this idea that we need to trust these people that are coming back to the Lord, repenting of their sins, but they're going to have to verify. They're going to have to verify that they are legit. And when we get in that mindset as Christians, it, it, that's not how we should be when it comes to the church. And what happens to Saul is, not only is it trust but verify, it's not even that. It, when, in Saul's case, it's we're not going to trust and we're going to verify why we shouldn't trust you. And that is this experience that they had just had as, as Jay pointed out. This is exactly what we're seeing here with Saul is, you know, we've got to realize some of these disciples, maybe even some of these apostles, that he's trying to join himself with in verse 26. It could be that Saul was firsthand responsible for killing their friends. That Saul was, was personally responsible for killing their loved ones. Killing their, their relatives. And here he is trying to join up with the disciples. And that's why we see him running into this. So the answer for, you know, for me is... Obviously, you, you, you want it to be no. You want the church to be a place where you can come and, and go from darkness to light. But Saul's story here tells us sometimes people would rather keep you in the dark. And that's just the sad truth of how people are. But that's not everybody, as we're about to find out. Uh, um, I mean, I would like to talk some more what I mean Ben brought up. Um, I love the term divine reverse. I mean somebody said it as I was in school and divine reverse which means basically uh, the truth is almost uh, uh, almost uh, opposite to the worldly wisdom. So world wisdom uh, says, as Ben said, uh, you know, trust and verify. I mean, trust and verify? Or, I mean, in the world, people say verify, and then you can trust the person. That is the world wisdom. But the, you know, the divine wisdom says, trust, and then you will know that uh, if the person is true or not. And it's the same with us, with our faith. Unless we believe in God first, we will not be able to know the truth. We will not be able to uh, verify if God exists or not unless we first believe in Him. Unless we have faith in Him, we will not be able to uh, trust Him. So divine truth, is the way, I mean, it's in, the, in this order. We have to have faith. We have to believe in God. And then we will know the truth. So faith is the foundation for us to know, to know the truth. That should be the way how we uh, develop our relationship with each other. You know, we first have to trust each other. Even though we may not know 
each other so personally, so much, but as we are in, in the church, as we are members of the church, we have to trust each other. We have to put our faith to each other. Then God will reveal, reveal us the truth, and God will show us you know, the way that we can know each other better and we can you know, love each other better. So I think it, it is also a divine reverse, a divine reversal, I'm sorry, divine reverse, not divine reverse, but reversal, divine reversal. So we have to put our trust first and then we will know the person. So that's what these Jews failed. I think Jewish Christians or Jewish people failed regarding Saul. Even though Saul made his disciples, let's see uh, verse uh, 21, the last sentence says, and I'm, I'm sorry, uh oh. Okay, okay. 25, verse 25. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Saul was so fervent in preaching the gospel. And he already made his disciples. The Bible says his disciples. It's, it's wonderful. It's, it's amazing. But the people in Jerusalem, the Christian people in Jerusalem uh, could not believe in him, could not trust him because maybe, I don't know the reason. Anyway, you know, we should not be like this. We should not be like this. We should, we should uh, give our faith or trust first to a person or to, uh, to a person if he says or she says that she repented and she's a member of the church, then we have to put our trust first. Then we will know, and God will let us know if he or she is a really, truly a member of the church. You know, Mingu, you say that, it's, you know, and we were talking about the trust but verify idea. When it comes to Christianity and, and the church, the phrase should be trust, and then nothing after that. Yep. Because God is the one who does the verifying. Mm -hmm. God is the one who asks the church. God is the one who forgives. God mm -hmm. is the one who atones for those sins. And God is the one who makes them our brother and sister in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to the second half of that, it's not up for us to mm -hmm. do. That's on God. Mm -hmm. And all we simply need to do is trust, love, mm -hmm. and, and, and exactly. do exactly what Barnabas, Barnabas is about to do mm -hmm. in our text tonight. Yeah. Well, one other thing regarding that, and I, I mean, Thank you for that mentioning. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, which is talking about love. Let me uh, read that uh, verses. Love is patient, uh, from, from verse four. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant uh, or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice. At wrongdoing, but rejoices uh, with the truth. Love bears all things, and then believes all things, hopes all things, 
endures all things. What if, what if we don't trust our brothers and sisters? What if we don't trust, I mean, believe those who say that they are Christians? Yeah. That will make a lot of problems. If we don't, it's not love, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point, bringing that in. Um, because I think, and this is what both of you have said, ultimately this is a, this is a faith issue. When we're not able, when, we, when yeah. we don't trust a brother, what ultimately we are saying is, I don't have faith in God that you could be changed right now. If, you know, if something would happen, you, come to, you, know, you had wronged me and you come back to me and thing, and for me to still keep you in that position is like, well, you know, Ben could never change. His, you know, Ben could never do that. And ultimately what that, that, that issue is is a problem within me to not trust that God couldn't change the individual. And so in this issue of acceptance, because that's what it is, the, the apostles, the disciples are rejecting the acceptance of Saul. He is trying to associate with them, and they are not letting them. And this ongoing thing, there's this idea that if he's tried to, and they've rejected He's tried again, they've rejected. It ultimately comes down to a, a faith issue. And ultimately, like you just brought up, it's a great point, a, love, a problem of love in their hearts that they're not able to see this as an opportunity. And, I, and one other thing before we move on to, uh, to Barnabas, the other thing I, I kind of noticed from this passage is also, I think, one of the reasons why they ultimately reject him but they were all afraid of him. You know, just like Kyle said this morning, when we let fear make our decisions, that's in, we're in a bad position already right there. You know, a, a few weeks ago we were talking about when, if we let fear drive us, sometimes we can use a rational fear to make irrational decisions. Was it rational for them to be a little weary of Saul? Yeah, I think so. I, I would have been, which maybe that doesn't mean anything. But I would have been a little like, okay, Saul, you're going to have to, let's talk about this. You know, if Saul comes strolling in, I'm going to, I'm going to, I got to hear some stuff first, right? Like, let me hear about this Damascus journey, right? Like, where have you been the past couple of years? So I just want to hear about it. So I, that there's a rational understanding that they would have been a little weary or afraid of him in the beginning, but that led them to make an irrational decision of rejection. And so sometimes our weariness or our, our fear of acceptance or somebody, maybe it's even understood in the beginning, but we can't let that take root in our hearts. We can't let that continue in our hearts to where we continue over and over, ostracize and push that person out and not bring them back in. So, so great, great points on that. Um, the next thing I, I thought about kind of bringing up with uh, the kind of topic of Barnabas here is how much do you think Barnabas, Barnabas risked himself how much did Barnabas risk by doing this for Saul? You know, you look back at chapter 9, and you see what Jesus says about Paul. Uh, in verse 15, he says, uh, He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And so Jesus, at the forefront of, of this conversion story we talked about last week, he says of Paul, of Saul, that he is going to be the chosen vessel to the Gentiles, that he is going to be a, a, a disciple, that he is going to be effective, and, and, and prophesies that about uh, the Apostle Paul. And so I'm not going to say that had Barnabas not stepped in that Paul would not have gone on to be successful, but I do want to say if Barnabas hadn't stepped in here when he did, I want to ask the question, how different would the life of Saul be? How different would the life of one of the greatest, if not the greatest missionaries of all time, how, how different would, it, would he 
have turned out to be. I mean, obviously he would have continued to be successful because Jesus said he would. But think about this relationship he would have had with the disciples in Jerusalem, with the apostles in Jerusalem. How different would that conversation have gone uh, in Acts chapter 15 when he comes before the apostles to talk about the issue of circumcision? How different would the exchange in, in Galatians 2 with him and Peter be uh, if he had not gotten this right here up at the front? And so, you know, we had the study on the unsung heroes. Uh, Barnabas, hello, he's one of those people. Uh, Barnabas stepping in here and declaring to them what he had seen. Declaring to them the, the, the preaching that Saul had given and showing them how, no, 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 this, this man is not in the dark anymore. He has been brought to the light. He is in the light. Of Jesus Christ and so I, it's 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 it cannot be overstated what Barnabas role here is in the life of Saul and just how much of an impact he had I believe a couple years ago at VBS we we talked about heroes in the Bible and one of those heroes was Barnabas because he stuck up for his for, for others that's that was the lesson of that night and here it is again as we think about Barnabas, Barnabas being the encourager, Barnabas being such a pillar in the church at this time in the book of Acts. Here he is stepping in, and I don't see Peter talking up, speaking up for the first time ever, right? I don't see Peter speaking up here and saying, no, 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 this, this, this Paul, this, this Saul right now, he is legit. I don't see John, the, the one whom Jesus loved, I don't see him speaking up. I see Barnabas coming out of nowhere and showing the disciples that he has been brought to the light. It's amazing uh, what Barnabas does here and what he continues to do all throughout the book of Acts as he goes on the missionary journeys with Saul. And then later on he says, no, I'm not going to give up on John Mark. I'm going to go and we're going to double up what we could have done in the first place. And so all throughout the book of Acts, Barnabas is an amazing unsung hero, this under-the-radar figure. And it's amazing what he does in this text because you got to ask the question, what would have happened? And so your question is, uh, you know, how much did he risk? The same question could be asked to us when we talk about these individuals who have come from the darkness to the light. How much do you risk when you stop someone from gossiping about them? Someone who's been brought to the light, they're in the darkness and they're in the light and all the people around you are still wanting to talk about what they did. How much do you risk by stopping them? That's a hard position to be in, isn't it? Sometimes it's, e it's easy, it's, it's fun for us to join in on that gossip, to join in on that hate, to join in on that divisiveness. But that's not what Barnabas does. Barnabas says he's in the light, so I'm not going to bring him back down to the dark. And he, he risks an incredible amount of things. His stature in the church, he, his, his reputation, he put it all in the line. All these people who had been hurt specifically, intentionally, personally by Saul. And Barnabas says, no, no, no. 
He's our brother. That's what he risked. I mean, it's, it's an incredible risk. And it was the right thing to do. And there's a comment, uh, don't do what uh, is easy, do what is right. Sometimes it's easier just to simply do what's easy. That sounds pretty rudimentary, mm-hmm. right? But we got to do what's right. Whenever we have a decision to make, my granddad would say, do the right thing, no matter the risk. And that's what Barnabas does in this text. Um, I don't know what um, Barnabas would have, I mean, have risked uh, for Saul, but I think, uh, I mean, what I, you know, what, what, what comes up to my mind about Barnabas at this point is that the church heard him. The church heard him. When he spoke up for Paul, I mean Saul, the church heard, heard him and changed their thought. And the reason um, maybe what the reason why the church heard Barnabas so uh, like that uh, could be explained by what Barnabas did before in the church. You know, he sold his properties and brought that brought it to the church uh, to fill the needs of the needy, and he was known as a. I mean, his name itself is the son of, son of encouragement. So probably he was very influential or well-respected. So that's why I think uh, his position was taken by the people, even though many people were afraid and were opposing to accept Saul at the time. So, you know, if I think about this, when I think about this, you know, uh, even in the church, uh, our reputation is very important. A reputation is—is is it a right word mm-hmm. in this context? Yeah, Mingu is such as uh, Mingu is uh, such as such uh, such and such a uh, 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 Christian. You know, if you know me, and if you uh, if you if I have a very good reputation, and uh, if you trust me, then in this. Even in this uh, situation, what I say will be heard. What I say uh, against your opinions will be heard. For example, you, you know, if you trust, if you know how I read the Bible, how I interpret the Bible, how I, uh, you know, uh, study the Bible or uh, practice the truth in my life, then you will, you will uh, be willing to open your ears. Me. So I think, uh, you know, even in the church, reputation is very important. I think Barnabas, uh, so the biggest thing that Barnabas uh, might have risked for this situation was his reputation. He could be, you know, kicked out. Well, what are you talking about? <laughs> Some people saying, go out of the church with him, with Saul. Some people may have said that, you know. So uh, Barnabas' reputation was at, uh, was 
at risk at the time, but he, you know, uh, bravely did it, believing in God, probably believing in, in the truth, the power of the truth. Yeah, I think you. I think you said that well. I think it's part of it is his reputation because he's not something that I. I when I was younger, growing up, I think I just fell into this trap of when I read this, you know, from about the middle part of Acts going into the end, I almost treated Barnabas like a just another apostle, mm-hmm. and he's not. Mm-hmm. He's not one of the apostles. He's a man that the only reason we know of him is because of his certain actions and his reputation. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, that makes it what he does in verse twenty-seven that much more that Barnabas is challenging the authority mm-hmm. and the decision of the apostles. Mm-hmm. And I love the, how, he's, how, it's, uh, how Luke writes it, but Barnabas took a hold of him and brought him to the apostles. You know, in my mind, I almost, I almost envision uh, Barnabas, you know, here, maybe he's talking to Saul, he finds out that the apostles didn't let Saul, you know, worship with them, or the apostles didn't let them break, you know, him break bread with them, and he's like, you know, you've got to be kidding me. Grabs Saul by the arm and rushes him in and says, you need to hear this man out, you know, and kind of stands up for him. And that's exactly what he does. He puts his reputation out on the line. He is sticking his neck out saying, you know, I know I'm not one of the apostles. I may not have been given divine authority, but I'm standing here for this man. And to me, that's amazing that he is challenging that level of authority because this is how much he believes in Barnabas. You know, and another thing we have to realize about Barnabas is he, he was the middleman between the church, acceptance, mm-hmm. um, the next phase of, Paul, of Saul's ministry. On, the one, one side, you know, Barnabas is a, is a part of that. And on the other side, you have Saul who cannot get there yet or for, other, you know, for certain reasons he's not able to mm-hmm. associate with that. And Barnabas stands in the middle and connects that. He brings Saul into the, the church in Jerusalem. He brings Saul. He instigates this next chapter of his ministry, you could say. And I think something we've got to realize is we're all Barnabas for somebody. You know, I've heard plenty, many lessons. I've preached plenty of lessons of, you know, we need to be a Barnabas, right? We've got to be a Barnabas. But the reality is we all are Barnabases for somebody. We are the middle connection, the middle ground between this congregation, the Lord's church altogether, and someone else who maybe has strayed, or has, or is just maybe, maybe they haven't strayed, maybe they're here, but they're having a hard time connecting. They're having a hard time because they're on the outside looking in, maybe because they're new to the area, maybe because they're past where it may be, but more than likely, almost every one of us in this room have a family, a friend, a co-worker, someone who's on the out looking in, whether they're not saved at all looking in at the church, or whether they're just having a hard time connecting. We are that Barnabas for them. And it's up to us to stand up for them. It's, us, it's up to us to speak out for them. And so, one, we need to realize that. But two, we need to act on that reality. We need to be doing everything we can to reconnect or to connect people to the church. And so Barnabas stands, and he, he re, to me, he, re, he realizes the position he's in, takes advantage of it, and like like. Ben, like you said, you know, even without Barnabas here, we have to believe that Paul would have gone and on to have a very successful, you know, life or ministry because that's was a divine plan. But how different would it have been? You know, would there have been a period where Saul gave up on the church of Jerusalem and said, you know what, I'll just go back to math. We don't know. Barnabas stood in here, and he is the, the, the flame that kind of instigated or started this new chapter in his ministry. So, uh, you know, one... One last thing before we move on to our final text tonight, uh, or unless y'all have anything else to add to this context, is you just never know what your word of encouragement might 
might do to somebody. You, when you realize you're the Barnabas and you, and you do anything, say a word of encouragement, send that note, you encourage, you know, you, you connect somebody, whatever it may be. Yes, it might be something small, but we just have no idea what that's, how that's going to multiply the next day, the next week, month, or years. One simple word of encouragement might lead to a conversation, might lead to a coming to an event, might lead to them becoming more you know, regular in their attendance, whatever it may be. I doubt Barnabas realized what he was doing in this moment when he connected Paul, or Saul, excuse me, Saul, to the church in Jerusalem. I wonder if he really realized, I'm setting up this man for a life. I'm going to be going on mission trips with him in, in a short amount of time. So just never doubt what you can do or what we can do. Any other comments on this text, 27 through 31, before we uh, flip to another passage? But it is not, it may be not, our, uh, but not uh, in line with the context, but, you know, Acts chapter 14, verse 14, uh, the text, I mean, the scripture calls Barnabas about, uh, an apostle. Oh, am I just completely wrong theologically? No, it's... Oh. Uh, Starting to sweat text. up here, guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's as if he was. Uh-huh. Yeah. He had that kind of reputation. Uh-huh. And let's uh, study for another night. Jay? <laughs> I, I have a comment about uh, this text as, as we think about it. Uh, because they gave Saul a chance here, the rest is history, as you might say. You know, because Barnabas gave him a chance and stuck his neck out for him, that is the reason why Saul was able to turn into Paul, that he was able to go and preach boldly. Verse 29, immediately after he's received, it says he preached boldly in the name of Jesus, disputed against the Hellenist, and and he goes on to continue to preach boldly. And look at verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria were at peace and were edified and were walking in the fear of the Lord in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they were multiplied. You know, when we think about what this decision Barnabas made does, it sets the rest of Saul's trajectory in place. Because he did what he did, he is able to preach boldly. He is able to bring peace and edification to the churches all throughout the region. Because that he did what he did, Saul was able to help multiply the church. And so my takeaway from that is when we see these people come from darkness to light, we got to help them every way to grow. We got to support them. We got to encourage them. We got to help them and, and, and help do whatever we can to make them successful. Because that's when God does incredible things. That's when God can do something incredible. But if we simply keep them in the dark, like they had the opportunity to do to Saul here, what are we doing to the kingdom? We could be hurting it forever. Instead, we've got to let the light shine, and we've got to let God do something incredible. One other comment I'd like to add to this text. I, I just this is something I found interesting. If you look down at the words used here in verse 29, he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. Something interesting that I ran across in studying for this passage. You, you know the last time someone was arguing with the Hellenistic Jews? Acts chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 9. But some men that was called from the synagogue of the freedmen, including both the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued 
with Stephen. It's interesting that the very first thing Saul did that we have record of was the last thing Stephen did. It's almost as if he's picking up where, his, where Stephen left off at. I thought that was an interesting thing I had never really connected before. Um, if I, you know, if I say something about, I mean, something about that, then probably that indicates that um, Paul has a linguistic, you know, ability to speak various languages. So that's why he could go to Damascus, which is, uh, it's, it's just not Judea area, I mean Jewish area, uh, which would be uh, spoken by other languages. And also uh, he could argue with these, you know, Hellenists. Uh, Hellenists may mean that they, are, they were speaking Greek. Mm -hmm. So probably Paul was able to speak Greek fluently. So probably that's why. But, but I, I, I understand your point, but you know, yeah, I just wanted to add. Yeah, and, and tell, yeah very, edu very well educated. Mm -hmm. Let's flip over to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read some comments made by, by Paul that he would eventually write in his ministry that I think bear well with what we've been studying with tonight. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. What do you think the significance of that last phrase in verse 13 is when, when Paul is either dictating or writing these words, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Colossians 3, uh, verse 13. So what do you think that significance is of him putting that in, especially in light of what we've been talking about tonight? You think, you know, possibly there's a connection there. You know, obviously that, that, that stands regardless, but... Now, with, you know, with this connecting to what we've been looking at tonight, uh, to me, it, it means that much more. Because Saul, Paul, he went through that. He had to go through that level of forgiveness and acceptance and that bond that Mingi brought up because of love that brought forth unity in Jerusalem. Well, you know, you look at all of his epistles, and obviously what he says in those epistles and how to deal with people and deal with conflicts, like in Romans 14 or in other places throughout his epistles, it's all, in the subtext, his own personal experience. Sure. Uh, I, I, out of anyone, Paul, Saul had the personal experience of what it's like for people not to forgive you. Of what it's like for people not to let you be in the light and want you to stay in that darkness. Of what it's like to deal with uh, people, imperfect people. And so all throughout his epistles, anytime he talks about forgiveness, you look at Ephesians 4 and verse 32, a very similar uh, passage to what we just read, but it's all painted by his own personal experience, uh, all obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but as we think about this, as Christ has forgiven you, so you also must do. You know, this might be one of the most fundamental things about Christianity that may have been forgotten. Uh, uh, about how, as Christ has forgiven us, we must forgive others. 
we're all on board about Christ forgiving us. Let me tell you what, there's not a person in the room tonight who's like, you know, I wish Jesus didn't forgive me. Uh, But there's probably a lot of people in here tonight that are like, I hate that second half of that verse. So I also must do to others. i got to forgive others of what they've done. I've got to let go of that, even if they don't ask. Uh, Yeah, that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did when he was on the cross. He, all these people were down below him, all these people who were spitting on him, cursing him, mocking him. And what does he do? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus forgave others even when they weren't asking. So here we are thinking about how we must forgive as Christ forgave. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the trusting but verifying. We don't have to verify. God's in control of that. It's not my business as to whether they're contrite or not. That's God's. I have to forgive as Christ forgave or else I'm going to be like those disciples who wouldn't want to accept Saul. You know, I hope if we get anything out of this tonight is that we're challenged to be like Barnabas. They have no reason in the world except for a faith and a trust and a common love to want to stick our neck out for this guy who persecuted Christians. I hope if I was put in that situation, I would have that same faith. But so many times in my life, you hold on to things, you, you build up things to the point where there's no way I'd be Barnabas. And that's my challenge tonight to myself as we think about as Christ has forgiven us. So you must do. And as Kyle preached a few weeks ago, our salvation depends on it. I can't imagine Stephen's family members, Stephen, who were killed by stoning, by, you know, rageous mob. And there came the man who evidenced, who approved the killing came to the church and he is claiming that he is a member of the church. In other words, he is claiming that he is a member of the church family. Can you imagine how it would be so hard for the Stevens family members to accept that? So forgiveness is not a not a not an easy thing to do. You know, sometimes we have to we have to uh, you know change our whole thought to do that. We have to lay our whole thought, emotions, everything down at the cross to do that. But Apostle Paul here he is saying that. We have to forgive each other. And because we are forgiven, we are forgiven by God. We are forgiven uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we can do that. But you know, as we think about you know, Stephen's, uh, Stephen's family members, then it will be very hard. But you know, 
That is the church. That is the church. Only those who not only uh, who are forgiven by God, but also who are willing to forgive others are in the church. And the church is great. The church is so amazing. You know, if someone is not willing to forgive others because of their trespasses, then he would not come into our church, come into the church of Christ because he is not willing to forgive. He is not willing to obey God's commandments. And he would not, he is not willing to accept the power of forgiveness that he has gotten from the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's why the church is so powerful. That's why church is so pure and so precious. So we have to do the same as the member of the church. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the flip side of, of what's been said so far, the other side of the coin, you know, Barnabas had to get the apostles to forgive, uh, had, to, had, to get, had to help them forgive Saul for what he had done and, and the damage he had done. But I wonder if there was a level in Saul's life where he had to learn to forgive the apostles for rejecting him. You know, because I wonder how many, how many times did the door get shut in Saul's face? Did they turn and, you know, turn their face to him or reject him publicly where a weaker man may have said, you know what, fine, I give up. And, but Barnabas stepped in and, and, and Paul kept, Saul kept trying it, you know, regardless. And I wonder how many of us in here tonight need a lesson on forgiveness or learned, you know, a lesson, you know, a reminder of forgiveness because maybe we're the ones that have been hurt. We not only, you know, need to forgive, you know, we, we look for forgiveness when we mess up, obviously, and we hope to be brought back in if we're able to mess up, but when we are hurt by the church, when we're hurt by a group of people, and we need to learn forgiveness in that manner, we need to learn, just as the Lord forgave us, we exercise our forgiveness through that too. Any last quick comments before I close in prayer? Yeah, I, last thing I want to think about tonight is we talked about the persecution, we talked about the conversion, we talked about the reception. But really that first lesson, like we were talking about earlier, paved the way for the rest of his life. I believe that first lesson, that persecution, plagued Saul, plagued Paul the rest of his life. Thinking about what he did, thinking about the persecution that he brought upon the church, and we see it all throughout his epistles. I want everybody to turn real quickly to 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 9, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9, Paul says, For I am least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. See, years later, many, many years later, Paul is here still just in torment over the, what he did. And so tonight, I... The two takeaways I'm going to take away. Number one is, if God accepts someone and forgives someone, it's not my decision whether I will or not. It's out of my hands. I must, even as Christ did, so I also must do. So that's number one. Number one is, if God forgives and accepts, I must. And then number two is, don't allow 
your past failures, if you were in the dark and you were brought to the light, don't allow your past failures to keep you from being successful today. Don't allow your past darkness to keep you from triumphing tomorrow and in the future. Because Paul didn't. Yes, it plagued him. Yes, he, he, he wished he had not had done, have done that, obviously. But it didn't stop him from preaching the gospel. It, in fact, gave him an indebt. He was indebted to the Lord. He was indebted to the church all the more to try to make up for what he had done. So if you've been in the dark, don't allow that past darkness to keep you from staying in the light. Because if you're in the light, it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks you are. I think Paul said it best in Romans 8 and verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's, that's what an amazing thought to think about. Even the church at many times was against Paul. But if God was for Paul, he had no enemies. Because nothing could stop what he was trying to do. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord and for Paul. Those are the two takeaways I have tonight. Okay, let's close in prayer. Dear God, we thank you so much for being our God and our Father. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom, including the book of Acts and the tale, the narrative we have of Saul here, Lord, as he transitions into a life of full-fledged uh, uh, ministry to your, to your kingdom. And we're so we're privileged now, thousands of years later, that we get to look to it and learn from it, Lord, and, and see the wisdom of your divine inspiration here and see the wisdom that Paul and Barnabas and the men in and around this story would play uh, in this factor. So we thank you for including this and that we are humble. We were humbled to not be able to look into it, Lord, and, and grow and be challenged and encouraged from it. We thank you again for being our Father. We promise you your Son's name. Amen.